Hi, I'm Nathan Green and I'm a member of the medical section of the Royal Statistical Society and I'm uh, pleased to be joined by Dr Maria van Kerkhove who's an epidemiologist at the World Health Organization and technical lead for the COVID-19 pandemic. First of all, thanks for talking to us. How are you doing Maria? Hi Nathan, thanks for having me. I'm doing all right. How are you? Um, very well, thank you. So before we start and get into what you're currently working on, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I am an epidemiologist, as you said. Uh, I study infectious diseases, and my background has mainly been in, um, as an epidemiologist, like field epi. I've done a lot of work sort of in uh, designing studies, looking at emerging pathogens. So a lot of what I've done is looked at the time a pathogen spills over from an animal to humans, what are the types of investigations that need to be done to prevent that becoming bigger? Um, what are the types of surveillance programs that need to be done in animals and at the animal-human interface so that we can quickly detect um, these pathogens uh, when they emerge in animals or when they're identified in animals and then how they spill over? Um, so I've done a lot of work with uh, respiratory diseases. Um, I've spent a few years in Cambodia working on H5N1, avian influenza, and uh, lots of different other diseases like dengue and Zika. Uh, I did my PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, where I worked on H5N1 in Cambodia. And then I did a postdoc at Imperial College uh, in Neil Ferguson's group. And I, at the time, it was the start of the 2009 influenza pandemic. And I immediately was working with the Global Influenza Program here at WHO. So I was going back and forth between London and Geneva to support the global flu pandemic, working on a lot of different aspects related to data, you know, in terms of understanding the situation and supporting the team on the development of guidance and things like that. And I worked on a lot of different types of pathogens since 2012, worked on MERS uh, coronavirus, and uh, I spent a few years in Paris at the um, Institute Pester, where I was working to set up rapid response teams for the emergence of pathogens uh, through the international network of Institute Pester. And then I finally landed here in Geneva at WHO in 2017 um, permanently. So I've been working with WHO for about 10 years. Uh, so far I've been working with WHO for about 10 years. And I just do a lot of different things related to infectious disease and, and de designing prevention and control programs. You seem to have like a technical, well, it sounds like you have a technical background and you've moved more into kind of implementing these ideas. So is, is that yeah. right? Like if you previously worked with modelers and statisticians? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a public health professional at heart. You know, I've always worked in different academic, but that's, I mean, that's just how my studies happen. You're, you know, you're based in academia for such a long time. What I've always loved about the role that I've had is I feel like I'm the link, I, I have contributed to the link between really robust academic work, you know, to try to design and have the most um, well-designed, you know, perfect, if you will, which of course, they're never perfect studies that you can have, and then work with public health professionals on translating that knowledge into action, that, that technical knowledge into policies and action that help either prevent infections or, you know, save lives. So it's, there's a lot of, um, there's a really incredible synergy, I think, between the academic world and the public health world. And I loved the role that I had at Imperial because 
I felt like, you know, I was, I was embedded within a modeling group. I'm not a modeler. I've done a little bit of modeling, but I would never, ever call myself a modeler. I understand it um, somewhat. <laughs> but what I've, what I've done a lot is to link academics with public health professionals and really try to pull out the best in each and make sure that the models are based in epidemiology, they're based in data, they're based in the practical aspects of why that data set is an incomplete, you know, because of how difficult it is to actually capture the right types of data, but then also how models and the results of models can be used for public health or looking at different types of scenarios or different types of programs, you know. And so I've always loved that that kind of link between the academic and the sciencey part and the public health. There is no separation between them, um, but I think there's a lot of room where we can work uh, together. How does that work in practice, though? Uh, are there like sort of competing voices or like how, how does that practically work? Are you actually just translating the results of the science to the public health professionals? Well, WHO works. We literally work with thousands of scientists all over the world, all the time, every single day. We work with uh, lots of different disciplines. Modelers are one, statisticians, epidemiologists, clinical specialists, doctors, nurses, um, IPC specialists, engineers, architects, um, risk communicators, social scientists, um, virologists, so many different, so many different groups. And our, one of our ability is to convene the world's expertise on different topics. So for the pandemic, so I'm the, I'm the um, health operations lead and the technical lead for the, for the COVID-19 pandemic. And I have a team that works on different aspects of the, the, the technical aspects where we develop guidance. And the way that we develop guidance is that we have networks. These are international networks of people all over the world with firsthand experience with this pathogen. And when they didn't have the direct experience in the beginning of the pandemic, they had experience with SARS or MERS or influenza or other similar pathogens to kind of pull together what everybody knew at the time, what evidence was available, whether it came from modeling studies or whether it came from clinical trials or whether it came from observational studies, whatever, whatever it was. And we evaluate all of the evidence that exists at the time, good, the bad, the ugly, the robust, the weak, the whatever. And we evaluate each study as they come and we, um, with our international network, and we have a very specific process by which we grade, it's, it's called grade, um, the papers. So, you know, in this pandemic, we have had this explosion, literally, literally an explosion of press release, publication by press release, publication by preprint, and then eventually peer reviewed publication. We look at all of that. Uh, obviously, we place the biggest weight on those that are peer reviewed. But when we don't have data that's in the peer reviewed journal, we have to look at the preprints. At the beginning, we were, we are still so grateful to receive the preprints, but you know, as you know, someone who's published papers, and I know as someone who's published papers, when you submit something, and by the time it's published, it may not look, it may look quite different. And that peer review process of the really rigorous review by experts in that field make the paper better. Um, and so we look at all the literature in our international networks. We develop guidance as a group together, and we write it into these these guidance documents. Those documents get reviewed. They go through another round of revision. Um, and then they eventually get published. Guidance from WHO is not written by a couple of people sitting around a table saying, Ooh, what should we do on this particular topic? It's, it's an incredibly strong, robust process. And then in a pandemic, you have to do it incredibly fast. So we are accused of being slow all the time, of course, but the rate at which we have actually produced guidance materials is really quite incredible. 
Um, the first technical package of guidance we put out for this pandemic was on the 10th, 11th, and 12th of January. So that was on clinical guidance for, for severe acute respiratory infections, laboratory guidance on what samples to collect, how to collect it, how to keep yourself safe when you're collecting samples. Uh, we had a PCR assay protocol that was published on the 13th of January because we had the full genome sequence on the 7th of January. Um, we had surveillance guidance on who was the suspected case. Um, we had IPC guidance on making sure that healthcare workers were protected. So we had a, we had a checklist of like how to get countries ready because those of us that have had experience with SARS, with MERS, with avian influenza knew immediately that you had to get your systems ready. And the countries that did really well in the beginning really knew that, you know, they had that firsthand experience. But all of that comes from our ability, WHO's ability, and I think really our superpower to be able to kind of harness the world's expertise to generate the, this guidance that comes out. So it's all data-driven. You know, I know, I know you wanted to talk about data and how does data influence what we do. It's every day that data influences what we do, every day. And it has to be, especially in, you know, everything WHO does, but in a pandemic, when you're generating guidance and you're working with governments to create and to implement a strategy, which is the strategy we've laid out, is a comprehensive approach. It has to be data-driven. So when you make your adjustments to what needs to be done, when you, you know, carry out your test case finding and cluster investigations and contact tracing and clinical management and all of that, it needs to be data-driven data because you need to use your resources where the virus is. Given that you're taking in all of this information, what's the challenge of kind of communicating it to the decision makers? Um, so that's a, that's a good question. It's a huge question. So there's lots of different ways in which we communicate the guidance and we communicate the recommendations to, to member states, to the countries all over the world and to the, the decision makers who have to say, we will do this or we will do that. WHO doesn't have implementation powers. You know, we put out the guidance and, and governments, uh, have taken that and they, they rolled that into their national plans in terms of their, their response plans. So what we do is we write the guidance for those people who will use it. So some of it is, is quite technical. Some of it is catered towards take towards the user making decisions. You know, a lot of the things we've done, so mass gatherings is a good example, where we can't be prescriptive on have this gathering or not. So what we'll do is we will outline the considerations using a risk-based approach so that the user can say, can I have this event or not? If I do have this event, how do I... What, what do I have to put in place to keep people safe, you know, or should it be postponed or canceled? And so there's a lot of things that we, we write them in different ways. And we communicate that with our member states through our regional offices and our country offices, where we work directly with ministries of health of implementing this into the, into the national guidance that they have, and then support the rollout of it either in hospitals or, you know, with their public health systems that they have in place. Models are really helpful in the beginning when you don't have a, when you don't know what is going to happen, models are, I find models, the most helpful models are the scenario based ones, the what if. So if we know the virus transmits this way, if we know the virus uh, can infect, you know, X number of people in terms of reproduction number, if we know the serial interval and generation time, what do we know? Or what are the assumptions that we can put in place to look at the trajectory? Now we know with our experience of, of working with models, like those tend to get quite sensationalized. We have our confidence intervals and then the upper bound of the confidence intervals is the one that makes the headline. 
But the scenario-based models are really helpful for the what if we don't do anything. What if you don't implement X, Y, and Z? What if you don't put in a surveillance system? What if you don't do your your robust testing? What if you don't? What, what will that mean in terms of cases and deaths? And that I think is really helpful in terms of talking to policymakers to show them the need for action and the need for early action. So I find those models to be quite quite helpful. Well, personally, I I worked for the Ministry of Defence for quite a few years, and I mm-hmm. found it really difficult to talk about uncertainty to decision makers because they don't want uncertainty. They want a definite answer. So even if actually there's kind of more information in what you don't know, they don't want to hear it. And do you have that problem? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have to communicate the uncertainty. It's it's very, very, it's, it's very challenging. Um, so I... I mean, I never thought I would be a forward-facing first person in a pandemic. I never thought that I would be someone doing press conferences so regularly. And it, and I am really honored to be part of this team that does this uh, with the Director General and with um, Dr. Mike Ryan, our Executive Director of the Health Emergencies Program. And I take this role incredibly seriously because I am a scientist. I'm a public health professional, but I'm a scientist and I'm a data person. So I read as much as I possibly can. Uh, We review as much as we possibly can, but we have to distill the information to a general public, to journalists, to a general public, to be able to articulate what it means. And for me, what is really critical is that we say what we know, we say what we don't know, and we say what we're doing to find out the unknown. So it's not enough just to say, I know this, or I don't know that. We have to be able to say, here's what we know about this topic. There's a lot of uncertainty around this because the studies are just being done. We explain why there is uncertainty around it, especially in the beginning of a pandemic. It was so new and there were so, so many people trying to get answers about severity, about transmission, about everything, everything, every aspect of a new virus. And we had to be humble. We have to be, we're human. Uh, We don't get every communication right, but we do our best to try to articulate it. Uh, but we have to we have to communicate that uncertainty, and we have to communicate what WHO and what our partners are doing to to, to figure out the unknown. For me, as a, a layperson, that's what I want to know most. Almost, you know, it's it's okay for me to understand that you don't know something, but I really want to know how many people are working on this to really get to that answer. But uncertainty is a part of everything that we we do. The other challenge I think with communicating is you need to know who you're talking to. So talking to a policymaker is a very specific audience. It needs to be done quickly. It needs to be very high level and they need to know the main things that apply very succinctly. You know, the top three bullets, the details of how you got to that and all that can be discussed with larger groups and and other people later. But, you know, you, you really have a small window of time. When you're talking to publicly, you're talking to journalists you're talking to your mom and dad and your kids and the grandparents and people with no scientific background, but you're also talking with your technical counterparts. So anytime we try to oversimplify anything, you better bet I get plenty of calls saying, you know, you've oversimplified it, Maria. You know, you need to make sure that you keep. So we have to make sure that we, we, we communicate as best we can. We try to be as succinct as we can, but that's just sometimes not possible because we want to give a full answer. And in this pandemic, I have had a direct experience with people willfully misusing my words, willfully using three lines or three words in, a, in an answer that I gave 
to fit an agenda. And that is also incredibly difficult. I mean, very, very difficult because we know our words matter and we know that our words have implications for people. And so me, just as a person, I find that the most difficult to to handle, but we're doing the best that we can to try to make sure that we're complete and accurate and humble and we'll continue to do so. I think that kind of leads into, I might make this my last question, that kind of leads into like the future really, like what do you think kind of what could be done better or improved in terms of the statistics and the modeling and the data collection? Well, I mean, with particular with the modeling, um, what I've, what I would like to see is refined models, revised models. I would like to see updated models with available data. Um, I would like to see the assumptions changed given the data that we have now, because we have so much more data now. And I would like to see the use of model models to, I'm looking at my map as I'm talking to you, I'm actually looking at my map on the wall because I get the question a lot of what's gonna happen? Where are we going? You know, what's, what's gonna happen with this pandemic? And in all honesty, the entire trajectory of this pandemic is in our hands right now because we have tools right now that can control transmission, that can bring it to an end. We need people to be able to carry out those activities by being supported. Um, you know, if you're asked to stay at home, people need to be supported in staying at home so that they don't lose their job, that they that they have access to food, that kids have school, you know, all of that needs to be supported, but the trajectory is in our hands. So what I would love to see is the use of all of this data that is being collected. We have incredible seroepidemiology right now, you know, that is looking at the extent of infection in the population. We have much better surveillance that's out there with, with, with more expanded testing. How can that help us think through the next stage of this? And eventually, as these vaccines come online, and they will come, what will that do in terms of the rollout? Because we know we won't have vaccines for everybody everywhere at, at first. We will need to have vaccines for people who are at highest risk of infection and highest risk of that for severe disease. Once those start to get rolled out, what will that mean in terms of the, the spread? You know, in terms of, and I, and I can see models being really, really helpful for that. But thinking for the next one, and there will be a next one, Nathan, there will be a next one. You know, everyone keeps saying that, you know, this may be once in our lifetime, but it won't. It, it, unfortunately, it, it won't be given the way the, the world works and given the way that we interact with animals and, and the way that we've changed our lives. We will have we will have similar situations. Um, I hope for not a very long time, but, you know, data is incredibly important to be able to be captured quickly through surveillance systems. And that data needs to be shared. It needs to be shared through WHO, through our international health regulations, and through um, all of the systems that we have in place. And that that needs to continue. This pandemic has shown us that genetic sequences are incredibly powerful in terms of understanding the epidemiology and linking the genetic data with clinical data, with laboratory data, with, with epidemiologic metadata to look at international spread. Um, there are more than 200,000 full genome sequences sequences that have been shared on public platforms like Jusade and others. That's pretty incredible. We need a lot more because now the sequencing data is critical to evaluate mutations and make sure that we are tracking this virus and the evolution of this virus to ensure that 
the mutations that we see, which are normal, there are normal mutations that every virus goes through, but are those mutations important in terms of changes in transmission and changes in severity and really critically in, in terms of changes that would make a diagnostic or a therapeutic or a vaccine not work? So we have systems in place that are monitoring that and we need more sequence to be available. So data is really important, but we have to use the data for analysis and we have to use the data for action. Data for data's sake is useless. It needs to be used and analyzed and critiqued and it needs to be turned into action. Great rallying call. I think that's a good place to end. So that's been really interesting. Um, so thank you very much for speaking to us. My pleasure. The best. Thank you so much. Stay safe.